Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. You're listening to the Archaeology Show. TAS goes behind the headlines to bring you the real stories about archaeology and the history around us. Welcome to the podcast. Hello and welcome to the Archaeology Show, episode 161. On today's show, we talk about ancient ear surgery, a Roman mosaic floor, and old pants. Let's dig a little deeper into your ears. All right, welcome to the show, everybody. How's it going? Hello. Yeah, so we are in Visalia, California, which is kind of in the central western valley area, north yeah, of Bakersfield. Like almost getting into the foothills. Well, very close to getting into the foothills of the Sierras. Yeah. Not quite, but pretty close. Yeah, we're about a 40 minute drive or so from Sequoia National Park and Kings Canyon National Park. Yeah, and like we totally wanted to go, but then I was looking at the weather and they're like potentially close for snow. And I'm like, well, it's, it's like 77 degrees down here. It's kind yeah. of crazy that half an hour away, but anyway. Yeah, we get a lot of snow up there at the edge of the Sierras. Yeah, for sure. So we've got three great articles and a surprise for you at the end of the show, but stay tuned for that. Mm -hmm. Uh, We'll talk about that at the end of segment three. So let's get into it. This first article is from Smithsonian Magazine, and it's entitled 5,300-Year-Old Skull Offers Earliest Known Evidence of Ear Surgery. Yeah. This story was reported in a couple different news sources. And I just really like the Smithsonian article the best out of all of them. So that's why I linked to that one. But the gist of it is that in northern Spain, in Reynoso, Mm -hmm. which is a town in the Spanish province of Burgos, there is a single chamber tomb called the Dolmen of El Pendón. And in that tomb, there are the remains of approximately 100 people. That's a heck of a grave. I know. So like that's setting the stage here for like what we're looking at. We've got a fairly large grave in this part of Spain. Mm -hmm. Now, this grave, they believe that it dates to somewhere between 3,800 to 3,000 BCE, which is like 5,300 years ago. That's a long time. Very long time ago. They were building pyramids back then. Yeah, totally. They were doing lots of amazing things back then, including, apparently, performing surgery. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so one of the skulls they found was that of an elderly woman, and it looks like, based on damage to the skull, but then healing of that damage Mm -hmm. that the woman experienced two different surgeries. Yeah. The first one was on her right ear. And I don't know how they know that that one was first, but that's how it was described in the article. It it may have healed more. Yeah. Maybe there's more healing on it or something. Sure. But the first one was on the right ear and they think it was maybe to treat like an infection or some other problem. Probably it was a visible infection or problem, Mm -hmm. which was how they knew to even do the surgery that they did. And then the second one was on the left ear. And again, because of the way the healing happened on the bone, it could have been back-to-back surgeries or it could have been months or years after the, the right ear. It, they really can't tell exactly when that one happened in relation to the first surgery. Yeah. However, there are two surgeries, two evidence of two surgeries on her skull. Yeah, the bone growth around the 
perforations, let's call them, indicate that the the woman did survive the surgeries, you know, mm-hmm. by at least a month or so, because you can tell we, we have really good evidence and really good. I don't know if evidence is the right word, but really good data from just medical data, how mm-hmm. bone grows when it's impacted. You know, yeah. when bone is cut or damaged, the body instantly starts repairing it. Yeah. And we basically know what those rates are for normal, you know, healthy functioning adults. Yeah. Yeah. So what's interesting to me here is I don't really understand why they can't get a better idea of when the two surgeries happened in relation to each other. If they do know that the woman survived both surgeries by at least a month, you would hmm. think that you would see much more healing on one side versus the other. I, I think it probably has to do with the fact that it's, you know, 5,000 years old. Yeah, and there's probably maybe. been some... Taphonomy is the process that bones go through after somebody dies. Mm-hmm. Usually that leads to fossilization, but but when you talk about the whole taphonomic process, but mm-hmm. obviously these aren't fossilized, so they're somewhere in that process. But during that time, you know, it gets crushed, minerals yeah, start doing stuff, and animals may have damaged some of the bones, yeah. and you know, all kinds of things could have happened. So. Yeah, I think with a skull this old, or a, a skeleton this old, it's really unusual to find it completely intact. And if you do look at the pictures, you'll see that it is definitely in pieces. And those pieces are from the burial process, the post, post-mortem, whatever happened to it in, in C2 in the ground. That's where the... the yep breaking happened. It so. looks to me, in my professional opinion, like the woman had a mastoidectomy. What do you think? Oh, do you think so? Yeah, I'm not a doctor, but I did stay at a Holiday Inn <laughs> Express last night. So. Right. What's a mastoidectomy? Well, so the mastoidectomy is a surgery to treat the infection of the mastoid bones, and the mastoid bones are located just behind the ear. Is that the, I'm not I'm remembering my human osteology, is that the, the three little bones that are in there? No, those are like in your ear. Oh, That's those like the, the, bones. the okay. uh, hammer anvil stirrup, I think, are yeah. the three that are in your ear. For like equilibrium and stuff. Yeah, yeah. The, the mastoid is part of, oh man, putting me on the spot here to remember my like human yeah. osteology. Well, it'll be part of the skull right behind the ear, it sounds like. Yeah, it is. <laughs> That's like your temporal bone, I thought that was right there. So it might That's be in like. in front of your ear, I think. Yeah, the temporal's in front of your ear. I can't this remember. Is your, this is your, you know, yeah. <laughs> really should have looked up like a, uh, a yeah, skull anatomy. You know, <laughs> that's fine. So long. It's not the osteology podcast. It's not the osteo- yeah. osteology podcast. But anyway, yes, right behind the ear. And what can happen when this get in, gets infected is that the... Um, the infection spreads to the air pockets that are in the bone because the Mm -hmm. mastoid bone is not like it. it, There's some porous parts to it Mm -hmm. and it can fill them with infection. And this can eventually lead to meningitis or blood clots, which are both very dangerous. So the infection is something that you want to treat, you know, as easily as possible. But of course, you know, pre antibiotics, the only thing you could do was drill into the head and hope for the best, I guess. Yeah. And the thing I'm wondering with these, you know, early surgeons, which was probably just like, you know, cousin Joe, uh-huh. what was the indication that she was having some problem aside from her saying, hey, my ear really freaking hurts like this, yeah. this does not feel great. Did they have a lot of experience with that? Was that common? And and, you know, somebody I'm willing to bet at some point in time just like took a pick to their own ear uh, because it was hurting so bad. It hurts so bad. Yeah. And they- maybe when they stabbed themselves in the head, it felt better. <laughs> So that yeah. got refined. Like the evolution of that, of understanding the human body enough mm-hmm. to know that if you do this thing, then this other thing will potentially go away or feel better. Like it, it is interesting to think about how that develops. Mm-hmm. 
this in this case, like I said, it's relatively common to find remains with this surgery having been done to them. It's common enough that it has its own name, right? Mastodectomy. Yeah, it's it's not something that is seen on modern bones, obviously, because we have antibiotics now. So that's how we would treat an ear infection Mm -hmm. like this. But it's common enough. It has its own name because it happens so much. In fact, the first written descriptions of this surgery is are from the 1700s. So you can imagine if they are doing it that far, that long ago, obviously they probably were doing it way before that too. It just, we don't have a written history of it. Yeah. The first, uh, some of the first evidence prior to this finding that's Mm -hmm. outside of written history is from actual skeletal remains in the proto Byzantine era from 330 to 824 of the common era. So, Mm -hmm. which is, you know, what is that? Uh, Twelve hundred or yeah, so years ago, which is actually yeah. not that long ago. This this skull really pushes the date back for yeah. for this surgery. It's not too big of a surprise. I mean, yeah. people, humans, and Homo sapiens all over the place had been doing some pretty advanced things mm-hmm. by that time. So yeah. you know, having this knowledge and people who live on the landscape and encounter this kind of stuff probably more often than not, especially in Spain where it's cold, really cold for the winter, and you mm-hmm. live in just damp, cold areas, you're going to get ear infections. That's just going to happen. Yeah, that's so happen. Yeah, for people sure. Are, people have been dealing with this, and like I said, I'd like to see that first person that just like stabbed themselves in the <laughs> ear, was like, I'm done with this. I can't yeah. handle it anymore. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, hey, that actually doesn't feel too bad. Yeah. yeah. Well, and I do wonder exactly what was happening there. Are they basically releasing the pressure buildup when, mm-hmm. they, when they drill into... Into the skull like that? Yeah, probably. Well, if there's air pockets in there and you can release those air pockets. Yeah. You know, so. For sure. I don't know. We're not surgeons, obviously. No, we're not. I will stab a projectile point into your skull if you want me to, but I really (laughs) advise against it. So let's say the uh, 10th caller on the show today will get their ear stabbed with a uh, projectile point. Good thing we don't have any callers. (laughs) Or projectile points, actually. Or projectile points. (laughs) Hey, I can nap you a projectile point from this parking lot. Oh, my God. So. (laughs) Well, what I love about this story is that it it turns things on its head as always as archaeology <laughs> turns them on its head oh man I didn't even do that on purpose <laughs> yeah but <laughs> I love stories that come from archaeology that do that because you always think of people 5,000 years ago being relatively dumb when it comes to anything related to the human body or medicine or science or anything like that but these people clearly were able to look at a person with a problem see this problem whether it was from just the pain that she was experiencing, mm-hmm. or maybe there's actual pus like coming out of her ear from the infection. Like that could have been happening. And they were like, all right, how do we solve this problem? And yeah, there's probably some trial and error, but you know what? They are way smarter than we give them credit for. They figured out a solution mm-hmm. and you know, humans marched along. So I love that. Yeah. yeah it's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. It would have been, uh, it would have been pretty painful to drill into somebody's head. It really would have. I'm thinking of drills that we see in Native American societies. Now, Native American culture 5,000 years ago in in North America was I would say not as technologically advanced as they, they would have been the metals and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I mean they didn't really five thousand years ago in Spain. Yeah. I mean they kinda yeah. they were get, they were getting close to it. But yeah. they did have drills though. Um mm-hmm. projectile point drills. Yeah. Um like stone drills we should call them. Yeah. Because we see that kind of stuff. A lot of times you'd have a an arrowhead or something or a spear tip that was maybe broken and then they would reutilize that by whittling mm-hmm. it down. Cause you would see like the the hafted end of a different type of tool and mm-hmm. then like shaped into a drill point. Mm-hmm. But these drills I had to imagine were roughly the same thing as these guys would have been using 
thing, which is basically just a a pointed piece of stone like a attached, really sharp rock. <laughs> yeah, attached to a piece of wood that you would, you know, you see people starting fires with like a piece of wood, that kind mm-hmm. of thing, rubbing it between their hands. That's how they would have probably used this kind of a drill. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So, well, and in, in order to take that type of a drill and puncture somebody's skull with it, <laughs> yeah, they would have definitely had to restrain her or even fully drug her in order to get through it because the pain yeah. would have been just like insane have some of that six thousand year old bourbon on hand i know right yeah and like ironically of course because they're treating an infection though they didn't know they were treating an infection they were just treating symptoms really but infection would have been a huge concern because when you open up somebody's head like that you know infection can always set in so yeah as we mentioned the growth around the the injury or the wound. I, I'm going to call it that because I'm not going to call it surgery. <laughs> but oh, anyway, not? <laughs> no, not really. The, the growth around that indicates she did survive for a while, but yeah. I don't know what kind of quality of life she had. Yeah. It, it, another thing I'll be curious yeah. about because like you, these type of things, they just didn't know what they were doing. And I mean, they basically lobotomized her a little bit. I don't know if she, <laughs> she like I don't think they cut even, parts of her brain out well, necessarily. You know, I'm just saying. <laughs> So uh, there's one kind of sketchy aspect of this article. Yeah. Only because they're they're taking a little bit of a little bit of a leap on this one. But mm-hmm. one of the authors is is quoted as saying that the flint blade discovered at the area where this where all these other skeletons were found, these mm-hmm. uh, these remains, shows traces of being used to cut bone. Now we can see that on projectile points. Yeah. You can look at the the micro wear patterns on the projectile point and you can tell different things it was used to cut. Yeah. We've got a lot of experimental archaeology that shows, you know, it looks like this if you're cutting bone versus mm-hmm. wood versus like an antler or tanning a hide, you know, scraping yeah. a hide or something like that. And then also the tool, not only is there cut bone evidence, but it looks like it was heated multiple times to temperatures of up to 662 degrees Fahrenheit. And they say possibly for the purpose of cauterization. Now, mm-hmm. first off, we don't even know if this was the tool used to work on the woman, because if she yeah. survived, why is the tool even still there? Why is it there? Yeah. yeah. So, But here's the thing, too. This is a flint blade. And those types of materials... There's proof of heat treating those types of chert and flint mm-hmm. and then that crypto crystalline silicate material. When you heat treat some of those, it actually makes them stronger. It does. Yeah. So we see evidence of heat treating all over North America. And, you know, you can see it with uh, you can see the fire cracked rocks around a ring mm-hmm. when they get the fires to really hot temperatures to break the rocks around it. And they'll throw these materials once they're flint napped and sometimes before they're flint napped mm-hmm. into the fire to heat it up, it changes the the crystalline structure of the rock, right. aligns it a little more, and just hardens it. It makes it more durable, yeah. basically. Yeah, so I definitely wouldn't want to leap to the conclusion that because the blade was heat treated, they were doing that for the purposes of cauterization. That it could just, have been. I mean, let's even assume that this is the one that they used to drill into her head, yeah. which is a leap in itself. It is a leap, yeah. But I would say that, I mean, heads are, you know, really hard. You always tell me I have a hard head, but they really do (laughs) have a hard, thick head. And just making the tool stronger so it doesn't break Mm -hmm. would have been smart. So they would have probably heat treated it anyway, since they knew about that clearly. Yeah. Just to make it stronger so it didn't break off in her skull. Yeah. And really, if this was the blade that was used to drill into her skull, I mean, I feel like we need to rethink what this entire mass grave is all about Mm -hmm. because if you're burying somebody with the implements used to work on them then isn't that more like a hospital so like i don't know there's a whole lot of leaps being taken just with that one sentence and i would like to personally rein it back in and be like cool she had surgery and she survived and we know they heat treated blades 
Yeah. And that's kind of where I would draw the line on that one. There you go. Yeah. All right. Well, while this woman's remains were lying buried in Spain with holes drilled in her skull, <laughs> the Romans were making pretty floors in London. So let's talk about that on the other side of the break. Looking to expand your knowledge of x-rays and imaging in the archaeology field? Then check out an introduction to paleoradiography, a short online course offering professional training for archaeologists and affiliated disciplines. Created by archaeologist, radiographer, and lecturer James Elliott, the content of this course is based upon his research and teaching experience in higher education. It is approved by the Register of Professional Archaeologists and the Chartered Institute for Archaeologists as four hours of training. So don't miss out on this exciting opportunity for professional and personal development. For more information on Pricing and course structure, visit paleoimaging.com. That's P A L E O imaging.com and check out the link in the show notes. Welcome back to the Archaeology Show, episode 161. And as Chris awkwardly alluded to before the break, <laughs> we are moving to London where an ancient Roman floor, more than 1,500 years old, was found under a London street. I feel like we were obligated to talk about this because it's I literally know. everywhere. I know. And so if you haven't seen this, I don't know what kind of rock you're living under, yeah. but it's been all over the it's place. It's been all over. And now I know that I get trolled on my social media by archaeology news stories because I look right. at them so often. So like the more popular ones always, I always see them no matter if I'm looking for it or not. But, yeah. you but can, this one is cool. Yeah. And you can find this article all over the place. The particular one linked in the show notes is from Newsweek. Mm-hmm. So take a look at it in our uh, show notes. Just look down at your phone or whatever yeah. you're listening on and you'll see the link there. And and do look at it and also watch the little video in it because they have great, beautiful images of the floors that we're about to talk mm-hmm. about. And they also have like a photogrammetry recreation of the floor too. It's it's really cool. You know, over at the Archaeotech podcast, we call it a photogrammetric recreation. Oh, is that what the real word is? <laughs> I'm smart. I'm smart. That's all right. You're not on the Archaeotech podcast. So go listen to the Archaeotech podcast if uh-huh. you want to know more about photogrammetric recreation. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But anyway, that video is really cool. I definitely recommend yeah. watching it. One cool thing about this is, again, 1,500 years old. 1,500 yeah. years old. Yeah. That's insane, first off. Yeah. And second, it's it was found near what they call the Shard in London, which is the tallest scraper in, skyscraper in the UK. Mm-hmm. Now, to build a really tall skyscraper, you've got to dig down. I don't know, 100 feet more mm-hmm. uh, to, to put the pilings in. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, you can almost envision it as, you know, it keeps the skyscraper from tipping over. I mean, yeah. it really is a foundational thing, not just from it doesn't do that, really, but it, it's more foundational for the weight this, that the skyscraper has on it. And while they're building that and other things, presumably in London for the last 1500 years, as kings and queens have died and killed each other and yeah. had sex with their cousins and done whatever they're going to do. <laughs> This Roman mosaic floor is just, just chilling been, like, under the chilling dirt. There. Yeah. yeah, it's amazing. It's it, crazy. Yeah, the the way that stuff you had no idea was there just all of a sudden pops up yeah. because of a new some sort of new building usually right mm-hmm. is is crazy. And in the case of this one, this is a project that's in advance of the Liberty at Southwark. That there might be some British way of saying Southwark. I don't know what it yeah. is, but <laughs> Southwark. American me is saying Southwark. Southwark. It's a scheme to provide shops, restaurants, and homes in the area. I'm imagining one of those like like hipstery kind of places that are popping up all over the place now. You know, and of course, here comes CRM again. Yeah, <laughs> they're doing this project or they're doing the excavation for this building, and that's mm-hmm. when they found this. 
Yeah, so this was found under the HS2 project. Oh, shoot. I'm just used to saying that. <laughs> I know, <Yeah>. right? <laughs> <laughs> this not, ironically wasn't found. Not part of that yeah. project. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that line has to end somewhere. I, it probably goes right into London. It probably does. Yeah, but so yeah. They'd have found it eventually. <laughs> This is the largest section of Roman mosaic discovered in London for at least half a century. Because mm-hmm. I guess Roman mosaics are somewhat common, you know, to be found. I love, I love that fact, too. Y- yeah. Like, this isn't the only Roman <laughs> no, mosaic. No, no, to not be the found. only one. Just It's the largest one, and not in the whole century, but in like a half but, century. <laughs> yeah. So they, <laughs> they do find these relatively often, which, again, is so crazy what you're talking about with how much building that there is that's going on there. That's so oddly specific. It's like, this is the 34th <laughs> largest <laughs> mosaic found in the last three and a half years. <laughs> So it dates to the late second or early third century CE. You know, if this were an American article, we'd also be talking about the size of football fields. All these different things. (laughs) Like the mosaic is the size of 0.42 football fields. (laughs) It's like 0.042 probably. Yeah, exactly. It's it's very tiny. Yeah. So it may have been part of a large and lavish dining room known as a triclinium. Mm Mm-hmm. And also, I love this part, there's evidence of another mosaic floor underneath it. They put a mosaic on top of a mosaic? <laughs> they totally did. Hashtag home reno 200 CE. <laughs> I, I love they, it. I bet they just wanted a more open floor plan. <laughs> right? <laughs> but think about what that means, though. Like, this structure was there long enough that they decided they needed to redo the decoration in their space yeah. or something like that, probably. Yeah. Like, that's the only reason to redo a whole mosaic floor, right? So mm-hmm. I just think that's so cool. Yeah, that was pretty cool. Home reno. Always been doing it. Always will do it. I know. We need uh, we need an HGTV show just called like you know Roman Reno, something <laughs> like, like that. Ancient Renos. Yes, ancient Renos. <laughs> that would be awesome. Yeah. So there are two decorated panels, and the way they are arranged is there's like basically like all these red, sort of variegated red mosaic tiles around them and between them. So the floor was mostly this red variegated color, and then the panels were probably punctuating the important parts of the room, Mm. and there's two of these panels. Yeah, the largest of which shows colorful flowers surrounded by bands of intertwining strands. It actually looks really cool. It is. It's so beautiful. This motif has a a name. It's a common, I guess, Roman motif called Mm -hmm. a a guilloche, G-U-I-L-L-O-C-H-E. Sure, that sounds like the best pronunciation I could go up with. Yeah. And it also has lotus flowers and several geometric elements, including a pattern known as a Solomon's knot. Oh, yeah. And a Solomon's knot, it's like basically two ovals that Mm -hmm. are interlocking in the middle. Like they're they're woven un- under each other in the middle part of it. It's really hard to describe. It looks like the middle. It looks almost like a square knot. Yeah. Like if these oh, were yes. rounded on the ends. Yeah, totally. But since they're rounded on the ends, it also looks kind of like an impossible figure. It is kind of yeah. impossible. Yeah. So yeah. Anyway, that's pretty cool. Yeah. And what I particularly love about this is the color. I think that the color is just so gorgeous. It was probably like originally vibrant reds and blues or even blacks. I heard in one or I read in one description that it was described as black. Mm -hmm. But in the pictures, it looks sort of like a reddish burnt orange and then kind of a gray blue like a faded denim blue kind of a color. Mm -hmm. And the colors today as we're uncovering it I just think are so beautiful. I'm like inspired as like a color person and an, a knitter to like go find those colors and make something with them. <laughs> yeah. The, uh, 
English Heritage archaeologist, uh, well, former archaeologist with English Heritage, Dr. David Neal, is uh, he's actually a leading expert in Roman mosaics, and he attributed this design to the Acanthus Group, which is a team of mosaicists working in London who developed their own unique styles. So yeah. a group of people making mosaics. And actually, yeah. when I read that, I was like, I said, I read it as a team of masochists. I'm like, masochists? <laughs> like, wait a minute. <laughs> what are they making mosaics for? That's pretty crazy. Yeah. But mosaicists, which yeah. is a pretty cool word. Which yeah. just shows you how many mosaics they've actually found in this yeah. area that they can like attribute have it to a, a certain group. <laughs> yeah, have a job called a mosaicist. Yeah. yeah. Which, that makes sense. These are really hard to do. Very interesting. There's a lot of work, yeah. and you would have your own style. It's like... It's like when you can identify the style of different potters for ceramics and things yeah. like that. You know, there's very different techniques to use and, and mm-hmm. subtleties that help define the, uh, oh, the totally. creator. It's a true art form. When I was in mm-hmm. college, I took an art history class and we had to do a project that was some kind of piece of art that was influenced by history. So I decided to do a mosaic. And boy, did it look like a child mm-hmm. <laughs> like put together that mosaic when I was nice. done with it. Nice. It was just so much harder than I thought it would be. And I thought it would be like, oh, you just like throw some tiles on. Done. Oh, man. Like planning it out and getting things laid in the proper place. It was so much harder than I expected. I used to be pretty good at mosaics, but they were solely made out of macaroni. Oh, yeah. yeah that's a skill. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm going to call myself a macosaicist. <laughs> so put that on a t-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> I have so many questions. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Moving on. The smaller panel of the two, it was, is a lot simpler and it has the Solomon knots again. And then these sort of like smaller stylized flowers. This would have been where the uh, the the Roman plebe soldiers were because they also think that this could have been a dining room of an upper class Roman hotel, like for high ranking officers. Right. But I'm thinking like the high ranking officers stand here. This is your line, <laughs> and you guys stand over here. Yeah. All, the, all the first lieutenants. Or maybe they put the women at one table and the men mm, at the other. Yeah, I could see that. <laughs> I don't really yeah. know what they're. What, how gender played into yeah. those sorts of roles, but yeah. Some things that play into that whole upper-class hotel sort of thing are the other remains that were found near here, which include lavishly painted walls, terrazzo floors, other mosaic floors, coins, jewelry, and decorated bone pins that, again, just allude to this was a place for uh, some sort of wealthy elite. Mm-hmm, for sure. Yeah. yeah, I guess there's also like the remains of a mansion next door that they think probably belonged to one rich family. Mm-hmm. It was the home of one family. You know, I have to imagine with all the construction that's happened in London specifically in the past, I don't know, you know, 2,000 years, Mm -hmm. (laughs) really a 1,000 years, but Mm -hmm. uh, all the construction that's happened and then the massive amount of land movement for big building construction in the last decade, or not decade, century, Mm -hmm. they must have, like, this would just go into the this depth of Roman history layer in London because every time yeah. they dig down somewhere they find other stuff so right. there must be a GIS map somewhere where this goes in and they know okay so two blocks away we found this at the same level so mm-hmm. that's probably contemporaneous we found this at the same level yeah. that's probably contemporaneous and I just would love to see the the multiple layers of Roman and other occupation in these GIS layers as they're excavating London. Yeah, totally. And it would probably be pretty hard, though, unless they have really, really great stratigraphy because the ground is always moving, you know, especially when you have a city on top of it. And it's getting layers built on and then fires burn things away. And like there's so many things going on. I I, I bet it's a really confusing and... I mean, looking at this floor, there hasn't been any movement on that in 1,500 yeah, years. Yeah, that's true. You know? that's but true. that being said, with that good 
occupational stratigraphy that's artificially created by humans, even if there is some some movement, you know, I mean, they do have they do have earth movement over there and some softer soil Mm -hmm. sometimes. But even with earth movement, those layers would still flow and you'd be able to follow the layers and and look at the different soil types and things like that. Totally. Yeah. Well, for this project, the next steps are to basically lift the current mosaic out so that they can see what's underneath. And I can't even imagine how much work and effort will go into preserving this thing while they pull it out. But I also am very excited to see what Mm -hmm. the below level looks like. I hope it's not a plain, boring mosaic. It better be something even more spectacular. I know. (laughs) Although that's unlikely, right? (laughs) There are some chunks taken out of this one. I wonder if... uh, after this, these pictures we're looking at here in the article we're taking, they've maybe augured a little bit into those, or mm, maybe, maybe they just don't want to damage what's underneath it. But yeah. yeah, they have said, I mean, we didn't report on that. They said there seems to be evidence of another mosaic underneath us. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. yeah. Who knows what they'll find in there? It's I'd cool, like though. to see evidence of a fight amongst the mosaicists. Oh, you know, like, oh, like, like somebody like, else was like hired. The other mosaic house is like the one underneath. Like yeah. they got covered up because yeah. they were out of favor or something. Exactly. <laughs> like, I can't believe you have that mosaic. Oh my god, <laughs> they're so not the cool ones anymore. You've got to get the acanthus group now. <laughs> I know. I know. So. All right. Well, I guess if you were making a mosaic, you probably had to kneel down a lot and. Uh, you know, they probably, they probably would have had to wear some <laughs> pants. Let's talk about some of the oldest pants ever found on the other side of the break. Welcome back to the Archaeology Show, episode 161. And we are cruising into segment three, talking about some pants. Pants. <laughs> pants. I was pants so excited about this story. And I like... I almost got my credit card out to buy the full, like the full article. article. Yeah. Cause it is so cool. But you know, me and my textiles, I just love this stuff. <laughs> Did this one knock your pants off? Oh my God. It's really knock your socks off. It is knock your socks off. I think you should leave your pants on <laughs> like always in all like public circumstances. <laughs> I just, so the listeners know, have never recorded this podcast with pants on. Did you know that? Oh, is that so? Yeah. Actually, I do have pants on. Uh, yeah, I think you're lying right now. <laughs> yeah. But you wouldn't know. Hashtag podcasting is the best. Hashtag I'm not suited for video. Oh, my God. All okay. Right. All right. Back to the article. So this is called World's Oldest Trous- Trousers Use Methods Still Employed by Modern Fashion. And I pulled the link from the Ancient Origins article, which I don't normally prefer those articles that website over others but really they did the best job of like breaking down this story and i feel like Mm -hmm. they probably did read the original article maybe yeah this is the oldest pair of trousers that have ever been discovered and it's published the official article is published in archaeological research in asia volume 29 march 2022 so this like legit just came out yeah yeah, we don't have access to this, like you said. It was, uh, what was it, $25 for it was. Like, 24 hours of access? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, and I just, yeah. I reading the abstract, I got a lot from that, and I was able mm-hmm. to fill in some of the stuff that I read in the Ancient Origins article, too, so... Yeah, and just so you guys know, don't ever get disheartened if you can't get the whole article because the whole point of an abstract is to... Like, summarize. State, it's to state the problem, 
state basically what you did to solve the problem and what the results were. Did it work or did it not work? I mean, it really is the entire article. And the only reason you would go to the article is if you wanted a more detailed explanation of the methods, the background research that went into it, their conclusions, future research potentials, stuff like that. But the abstract is the article. So you can get a lot out of that. And in this one, too, you can see the figures, which are mostly images of the pants and the other articles that were found in mm-hmm. this tomb. So I said tomb. So let's get to where it was found and, and who it is and what it is. Yeah. So it's the excavation of a tomb in the Tarim Basin in Yanghai, China, which is in the northwest part of the country. Mm-hmm. The site dates to between 1200 to 1100 BCE. And the remains are a male and he's basically got a full set of clothing including eight wool garments and there's a little video i love when these guys do videos so there's a little video in this article and you can go see the actual excavation of it and i was kind of envisioning like a like a stone like cave or like situation like that Mm -hmm. it's not it's like a full-on burial in the ground they're like peeling dirt away from from the the remains and they still have this amazing preservation with nice. eight woolen garments and they are mostly complete. Yeah. It's so cool. So definitely go look at the picture so that you can see what I'm talking about. But I no. thought I was, I was amazed by the preser- preservation. Now you said wool garments. This is like legit sheep wool garments. Oh, you know what? That's a good point. I was assuming sheep wool, but nothing that I read specified sheep. Yeah. But given where it's at in China, I would say probably sheep is most likely. Yeah, I don't know anything about like domesticated sheep and its proliferation across Europe. Yeah, you know? no, I don't either. Yeah. But there's nothing else that I can think of that they would have had at that time that mm-hmm. would be domesticated enough that they could be making like a full on, you know, clothing a costume almost out of it. So. Yeah. A full-on outfit. So this guy is known as Turfan Man because of where he was located, I guess. Clever. Yes. So what is interesting here and why they call these the oldest trousers is that clothing at this time, it's been established that it's primarily like skirts, capes, that sort of like blousey flowing thing. And so it was very unusual to find pants, obviously. They just weren't weren't really wearing them so the hypothesis is that this was potentially for horse riding and that's why he mm-hmm. had that split pant detail going on yeah hey uh, real quick a a really fast search on domestication of sheep oh sure by the yeah. way one of the earliest animals to be de- domesticated mm-hmm. uh, probably in, in mesopotamia iraq yep. iran area gotta have clothes gotta be warm makes gotta sense have clothes. that's right and it actually spread out pretty quickly around around the whole middle east central asia india china japan mongolia mm-hmm. and eventually of course uh, africa europe and the americas yeah so sheep okay. are pretty much everywhere at this point yeah yeah, yeah your early materials for making fabric wool and mm-hmm. linen or flax, something in that family. Yeah. And then cottons and stuff come along a little bit later, I think. So, yeah. like, that that makes sense. So, these pants are made of wool. And, like I said, they're very unique because mostly people were wearing more, like, robe type of things. Not really robes, like ponchos mm-hmm. and skirts and capes. open capes. Yeah, that kind of thing. <laughs> I love that skirts and capes are, like, the thing mentioned. Yeah, I know. people were generally wearing at this I know. Time. I mean, I think that all men should wear skirts, but hey, what? that's just me, personally. Well, but why don't we live in a time where we generally wear capes? 
<laughs> I don't know. I, like, you should work on changing that because like I just want a cape. a cape a day. You know that sounds yeah, amazing. <laughs> I mean, I want I want just like capes hanging up by the door. Yeah. Like which capes are you gonna wear? Yeah. You know, and if I'm going to breakfast, I'll have like I'll have like you know my my crepe cape. <laughs> cape. So you know I can I can have a fancy one for that. And, oh my god. You know. Yeah. I bring them back, yeah. dude. Go if for it. If we're going roller skating and you have your skate cape. <laughs> yep. I mean, just like all kinds of stuff. Mm-hmm. So it sounds anyway. great. I'm on board always. Yeah, let's bring Back. Good for a cape moment. That's Let's right. Do it. <laughs> so these pants are super well made and they show a variety of weaving, sewing and also finishing techniques that are still used today. So construction wise, we've got uh, two leg pieces like you would imagine and they sort of widen up in the hip or thigh area. Yeah, they do. <laughs> I don't even know what that means. <laughs> Just like normal. My hips, my, I got my pants widen in the thigh area. <laughs> That's true. But they widen almost excessively, which makes me wonder if... Like billowing almost? Yeah. like it, Yeah. And they might have had like a drawstring type of thing to mm-hmm. close them or something. That that part is unclear how they were closed. I mean, if, the they're, if they're looser, they do allow for a lot more airflow and stuff. That's true. Yeah. And then the other thing, which is weird and is not like a modern construction technique, is that there's basically a crotch piece that just like bam like slapped it right on Mm. that section where the two leg pieces would meet up at the crotch Mm -hmm. so that's not normally how you see crotches and pants constructed today they're a little bit more like conformed to the body and if you there is a crotch piece it's like a small like separate piece for leggings or something like that so this is definitely different but it they are hypothesizing that maybe it was bunching there that would allow increased mobility and maybe even some extra cushioning Mm -hmm. like if you're riding a horse and you need some cushion this guy went to his tailor and was like listen (laughs) i need some extra cushioning right here right (laughs) that's all hypothesis speculation right there for sure because we don't really know what what they were thinking when they constructed them but I know there's people that do reconstructions of certain eras of clothing and stuff. Mm-hmm. It would be really cool to see somebody put together something like this. Oh, yeah. yes. Go watch that video for sure because yeah. they did. They Did they? They did. Yeah. They Well, they, they saw all these different weaving techniques and they just wanted to prove that what they were saying about it was actually recreatable and really possible. So using the material from the time and weaving has been around for millennia. So like that, that's something that hasn't changed. So they were able to hand make the yarn and then weave it into these pieces of fabric and then cut it and sew it hand sew it into the full costume that this guy would have been wearing it's yeah. it's amazing like you should go look at the video it's really cool we could do an entire podcast with its own episodes on experimental archaeology yes it's really cool this is like if i were to go back to school i want to go back to school and be an experimental textile archaeologist mm-hmm. and i just want to like <laughs> recreate old clothing from various different area eras across the world if yeah. anybody is looking to hire somebody to do that i have the skills i want to do that <laughs> nice and i have the skills because i have a loom and i can sure and knit and weave anyway yeah okay so back to the fabric themselves back to the ways that the fabric was constructed we have a twill going on here and twill is when the weft 
yarn, which is the horizontal threads going across, okay. right? Is that the one you pass through with yes. the shuttle thing? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Oh, look at you Hello. remembering words. Good for you. So the <laughs> <laughs> so what the weft does is it passes over two or more warp threads at once. So it jumps over over two and then under two and over mm-hmm. two or, or some combination of threads, but it's at least two at a time. And then on the next pass, it will basically shift over one direction, one thread, at least one thread in mm-hmm. one direction or the other. And so it creates a lot of like chevroni diamond looking patterning on it. Right. Okay. And the reason that you do this is because it creates a super durable fabric. Number one, by doubling up over those warp threads, you get this thicker fabric. It's really durable. Mm-hmm. And we use it today for denim and twill pants. Like look at your jeans right now that you're wearing and you'll probably be able to detect like a slightly like diagonal shape to it. It's yeah. that is that twill patterning. Right. And the other thing it does is it gives a lot of like movement to the fabric. It allows it to stretch better than a a basic woven garment would. Mm-hmm. So it's it's thicker, but it's also stretchier, I guess yeah. you could say. I love twill. Twill is the only kind of stuff I've ever done on my on my loom and it's just really fun to make and it's makes a really cool, really awesome fabric. I don't ever remember you making me any pants. I have not made you pants. That's that is accurate. <laughs> <laughs> but I was in the Navy and I'll never wear cotton pants again. So I can make you some wool, wool pants. pants. Would I you like some wool pants? I'm not wearing wool pants. I will actually start on I'm fire. I'm put that on my list of things to make for you. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta get my loom and bring it in the RV mm, though. I'm not sure that's gonna happen. Not gonna happen. So the twill method seems like it's probably been developed independently around the world because there's samples of twill in Europe that are 200 years older than this. Not pants necessarily, but just samples of twill fabrics. So it's the kind of thing that people could create on their own and it probably developed Mm -hmm. independently, but that's just a guess. Okay, so that's what most of the fabric of the pants is, all of the sort of undecorated parts, if you will. Now, there are a couple really nicely decorated sections across the knee, particularly, and that is what they are called tapestry weaving. Oh, yeah. So I would like to say one thing here. Twill weaving and tapestry weaving are basically the same thing. But what's going on with the tapestry thing, as they're calling it, is that they're making a decoration. So if you look at the part of the knees on the knees, it's it's thicker because you've got multiple colors going on. And whenever you have multiple colors, you get a thicker fabric. But it's a decorated geometric inclined T-hook pattern. Mm -hmm. And that pattern is is done. It's the tapestry thing where you have the different colors interlocking and you're you're creating it there's just it's a slightly different method of construction but it does create a very similar fabric right now in this case what's really interesting about this fabric is that it's the same pattern that you see on bronze vessels that date to the same time period okay so you're seeing like mirroring the same decoration which is really cool nice so just really quickly the turfin man's outfit It consisted of more than just the pants. It's a whole outfit. There's a poncho. There's a belt at the waist. There's a single pair of bands that are braided to tighten the trouser legs below the knee area. Mm -hmm. And then there's another pair of bands that are to tighten the leather boots in the ankle area. And then finally, there's a wool headband. So, I mean, he's got the full regalia going on, and it's all so well-preserved. It's really great. Now, he was buried with this. He was. He was buried in this outfit, it sounds like. Yeah, and it makes me wonder if this was a really was like an everyday utilitarian outfit or if they buried him in fancy clothes. Some kind of decoration. Yeah. 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 Well, and to that point, the headband, it's got four bronze discs and two seashells sewn on it. Mm Mm-hmm. 
so it's a little bit fancier for the time period. Sure. And then they also found a leather bridle, a wooden horse bit, and a battle axe with him. So this is sort of adding to this hypothesis that maybe he was a horseman and also a warrior, maybe, because yeah. of the things he's buried with and the clothing and the, the, the pants that you wouldn't normally see on a normal person. So. Yeah. You know, just a hypothesis, but they need to do more research, it sounds like, to kind of go further than that. But that's that's where they're at right now is it's potentially a warrior horseman. I love that. Warrior horseman. Mm-hmm. That's going to be my punk rock band. <laughs> yep. All right. <laughs> nice. All right. Anything left to say on these? Oh, my gosh. So much more. I'm so interested in the fabric in the fabric making process and the history of it and the development of the different techniques, but mm-hmm. we'll leave it there and go read the article and you might be able to learn more about it from the the article. <laughs> All right. Well, before you stop this podcast and move on to your next one, don't yes. skip it. We have two pretty big announcements right now. The first one is Rachel and I, and we're going to be hopefully eventually, we're not going to do this right away because we need to get our process straight, but we're going to be doing a live show every two weeks. We're going to start it every two weeks. I'd like to get to every week, but let's start slow. Mm -hmm. Uh, Every two weeks, starting on Wednesday, if you're listening to this in real time. So that is, uh, I don't know what day that is. I should have had my calendar up, but that (laughs) is Wednesday... March 9th, 2022. And it's going to be at 4 p.m. Pacific time. Now, you have to sign up to get the link to go here. It's using a a third-party service called Crowdcast that we're going to be doing it on. You can find the sign-up. Either look down at your show notes on the phone, and you'll find those. uh, A link to the Crowdcast sign-up, but you'll also find a link to Culturo Media, which is the overarching brand we created last year to be over the APN to run live events, other podcast networks we want to start, and other things we want to do. Mm-hmm. So the real links are going to be on Cultural Media and there's a there's a Cultural Knowledge Share thing it's called right on the front. You click on that and you know eventually we'll start just sharing the link to individual pages there. Mm-hmm. But in the meantime, go sign up for this. It's totally free. If you can't make the live recording, because it is at a weird time, we're trying to find the best time to do this, but again, Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific time, which is 7 p.m. Eastern time, we had to pick a time. We move our RV on the weekends a lot, so Saturday is just not going to work out for us right now. Mm -hmm. Now, if we end up adding more shows, we may do some bouncing around at some different times and stuff like that, but we want it to be consistent. So. Again, if you can't make the live recording, you can watch the recording if you're a member of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Mm-hmm. Members uh, pay us seven ninety nine a month. There is an annual rate that saves you, I think, 20 or 30%, and you can just get billed once a year. Mm-hmm. I want to say it's 20%. I can't remember what the discount is, though. But if you go to arcpodnet.com slash members, you can do that. If you're already a member, first, thank you. Second, there is a section in there, and I might be adding a new one for links to this cultural media page, mm-hmm. or I might be just just putting this video on the APN page because of the way that our (laughs) system works for all that. So anyway, check those out. Again, if you want to see the, the, I call it the virtual ticket. If you want to see any past live events or any past things that we're going to do, like the Life in Ruins podcast is doing a live event in a few weeks too. Mm -hmm. If you want to catch that on a rerun because you couldn't see it and you want to see the recording, it's going to be on your members page for members only. The other thing that's also on your members page is bonus content, something we have been really bad at doing, (laughs) but we're going to get a lot better at that starting with this episode. Yes. So we have a fourth article we're going to talk about and it's, I'll give you the title of it here. Archaeometric studies on rock art at four sites in the Northeastern Great Basin of North America. This is a really cool uh, article about a newer type of rock art dating and that 
is in the bonus content. Yes. So if you're a member of the APN, again, go to arcpodnet.com, click on the members link in the navigation, and then you'll see bonus content right there, and it'll be listed right there um, yeah. with all the other bonus content that's still there. Yeah. And... You can listen to that right on the APN website. There's no commercials, mm-hmm. and it's it's a benefit for members. Yeah. So. yeah, we just appreciate all of you guys that are members so much, and we wanted to try and make sure that we were delivering a little bit more content, so that's where this whole extra bonus yeah. stuff is coming from. We're going to do it for as many of the podcasts as we can, and then the live shows, too. Like I think it's going to be really fun to be there live, so we yeah. would love to see as many of you guys show up live as possible but if you can't make it we totally get it and as a member one of your perks is going to be that you can watch it anytime so it'll be there for you to watch or listen to keep in mind membership to the apn is not only cheaper than netflix these days (laughs) but doesn't pay those fat cats anything and you get high quality podcasts on various subjects as a member you get them commercial free you get them early yeah you get all the live events that we have they're going to be coming up i mean i just paid almost three hundred dollars for this (laughs) live for this this platform to do these live events we are going to be using we are going to use it yeah we just we just really want to go in this direction and and just you know create more content it's just so fun so we're not going to stop doing the free podcast of course no of Um, course we're just adding more value for those of us for those of you that want to support us yes and 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 help keep this going because this takes a lot of effort a lot of time we love doing it but to be honest as independent consultants like really both of us are this takes time away from, you know, to be honest, things that make money and pay the bills. Yeah. So help bring some cash into here, cover expenses for the APN, help our other hosts to get paid and help keep all this going. Yep. So with that, we will end this show. And again, we'll pick this right up again on the bonus content. The bonus content is available at the same time that the regular show is available. Mm-hmm. So look for it at that time. If you have early access to the show, you have early access to the bonus content as well. Mm-hmm. And that means you're a member. And thank you. Yes, thank you. All right. Again, arcpodnet.com slash members. We'll see you next week. Bye. Thanks for listening to The Archaeology Show. Feel free to comment and view the show notes on the website at www.arcpodnet.com. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at ArcPodNet. Music for this show is called I Wish You Would Look from the band Sea Hero. Again, thanks for listening and have an awesome day. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.